Hi, Vivian. How are you? All right. How was the Easter show? Did you have a good Easter? Yeah. I had all my favourite rides at the Easter show. I all, all of my favourite rides, and I went to the horsey ride at the Easter show. A horsey and ride? All of the were my favourite. This is Vivian. So, Vivian, how old are you? Um, I'm three. And three-year-old Vivian called me all by herself for this interview. And are you calling me on your mum's phone? Yeah. So you know how to use your mum's phone? Yeah. Can you use it better than she can? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to Vivian about what she does on her mum's phone. Hey, what games do you play on the phone, Vivian? That's Melanie, Vivian's mum. I play bunny pop. Tell Ellen how bunny pop works. How do you play bunny pop? You have to get the dot up to the same like that pop, so, and when you get something that pop, you just back it up, and then it's We are witnessing a generation of children whose childhood revolves around screens, and it all starts from when you're a baby. That's Vivian's younger brother, Robbie, you can hear in the background. Robbie is 16 months old. Can Robbie play on the phone? Yeah, but we like baby games. So. Baby, only baby games. And do you help him use the phone? Yeah, I do. He's up so excited with the phone. Yeah. Oh, he wants the phone now. Oh, he's jealous that you're using it. Yeah, he just he, he, that's my phone. <laughs> Remember when your mum or dad told you not to spend too much time watching TV or else you'd get square eyes? Well, turned out that wasn't true. And do you spend lots of time on the phone? Yeah, lots of time at night. Lots of time at night. It turned out to be a whole lot worse. Hi, I'm Ellen Leebeater and this is Think Digital Futures. This episode isn't so much about looking into a crystal ball. This episode we're going to focus on the digital now. We've moved a long way from just having a TV screen in our living room. We now have at least one, maybe two or three screens in our bedroom. And these screens follow us everywhere, even to the bathroom. So what impact is this actually having on us? How is it shaping our culture? To help answer these questions is producer Shane Anderson. Hi. Ellen, how many hours a day would you spend looking at a screen? Well, I look at my phone first thing when I get up in the morning and then when I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> and then probably eight hours a day at work, another two or three at home. What's that? Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, probably twelve or thirteen, fourteen hours looking at a computer screen or a screen. Yeah, I think it's probably about the same for me. But look, the internet is so embedded in our lives, we're probably actually underestimating that figure. Seriously? Yeah, a study called Digital Down Under reckons that 13.4 million of us spend 18.8 hours a day online. So 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. So what, we're five hours without screens in a day? That's it. What? That's crazy. Well, for a lot of us, that 18.8 hours includes every minute we're awake, whether checking the weather, scrolling through social media, even watching Netflix. Take our phones, for example. They're online all the time, even when they're in our pocket. 
and whenever it flashes up that we have a new email or a news notification, we're using the internet. So it's not necessarily that we're spending 18.8 hours a day on the internet. It's just that our phones are connected for that amount of time. Is that it? It's always around us. So according to this study, we're a nation of people who are hooked on the internet. Well, in a way. I mean, so many of us have no other choice but to use it in our day-to-day lives. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're hooked. Actually, while experts are sure that spending too much time on the internet is doing something to our brains, when it comes to actually being addicted to the internet, nobody is quite sure what's really going on. This is Lawrence Lamb, Professor of Public Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. At this moment, there's no actual clinical diagnosis yet, even though what we call the DSM-5 has also included this particular issue as part of their emerging problem that we'd like to look at for further sort of exploration. The DSM-5, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's what psychiatrists, psychologists and really all mental health professionals use to identify and diagnose people with mental health disorders. Yep, and version 5 came out in 2013, but already in those four years, it looks like it's fallen behind. Lawrence studies the impact of high internet use, particularly on young people. He says that problematic internet use is part of what's called a behavioural addiction. Behavioural addiction is quite a new thing that is rooted in substance abuse and dependence, that sort of model. The most common behaviour is gambling or sexual activities or shopping. And that actually reflects that people actually having problems committing themselves in certain behaviour that actually causing problems. Well, the internet makes sexual activity, gambling and shopping heaps more accessible. It's no wonder people are using it problematically if they go online and they've already got these pre-existing problems. Exactly, which is also why researchers are reluctant to outright say that internet addiction is a thing on its own. But why don't they just treat these behavioural addictions the same way they treat substance abuse? It's because a behavioural addiction, like being hooked on the internet or to gambling, isn't the same as being physiologically addicted to a substance. Katina Michael is a professor with the School of Computing and IT at the University of Wollongong. She explains the difference. There's an interesting test that was done by a Canadian psychologist, Bruce Alexander, who looked at this notion of creating a cage and letting a rat loose in the cage. There were two flasks of water. One was tinged with cocaine. The other was just plain water. Nine out of the ten rats actually got so addicted to the water with cocaine that they kept going back and back and back until they died. That sounds like a straight-up addiction to me. It is, but it's also not the end of the story. Somebody about 10, 15 years later decided, well, hang on a second, the cage was a superficial environment. They let a lot of rats out in what they termed Rat Park. And Rat Park was the most awesome rat environment you can imagine. And there were some rats in that environment and there were some rats in just a plain old cage. So the difference is, is that the rats in the park now have a choice. Do they choose the cocaine? The rats in Rat Park resisted the water with cocaine. They didn't die. However, in that other Rat Park, which was plain old, almost all the rats died. So is addiction more about our behaviours, our perhaps socioeconomic circumstances? And are we prone more to addictive behaviours when we're in the wrong cage? So how do we know if we're in the wrong cage? 
Well, chemical addiction and behavioural addiction may operate pretty differently, but according to Lawrence, the psychological symptoms are actually fairly standard across the board. The substance abuse and dependence model has been brought over to understand human behaviour. It's quite a full list, including preoccupations, withdrawal, tolerance, trying to give up the behaviour but couldn't succeed, continuation of the behaviour despite that there are problems popping up, and also being quite deceptive because they don't want people to know about them. Also, most importantly, is actually causing damage to yourself, to your health, as well as to other people. This level of problematic internet use is pretty serious. But it does show that some people can be on the internet for 18.8 hours a day and not be addicted, although that's not something we're recommending. But one doesn't necessarily cause the other. There's something else going on here. And things get even more fascinating when researchers started to use MRIs to try to understand the brains of people hooked on the internet. Lawrence explains. What I found is that for those high user or risk user of the internet, they bring image actually very similar to those having gambling problems. That suggests that it may be that the internet issue is actually affecting certain part of the brain pathway, may not necessarily exactly this, the gambling pathway. But nevertheless, there's some similarity there. So these are the people we all know who, when you're at dinner or a movie, just can't seem to stop checking their phone. Are people born with their brains wired this way, or is it what the internet is doing to us? We just don't know the answer. But one thing Lawrence has found in his research is that people, especially young people, with a problematic internet use tend to have other stuff going on in their lives, which is making their internet use worse. It is not a problem for the individual, but actually it's a problem also embedded in the environment. So my research area actually expand to look into the family structure. And what I found is that for those young people who actually have problems, their parents are also high-risk users. That makes sense, that kids are just doing what their parents are doing. It's like the rats in the park. Your own actions depend on what's happening around you. Right, and it's not the only environmental influence that Lawrence found. So we also extend the study into the school environment. And what we're looking at is peers, the teacher's relationship with the student. Now, what I found is that for young people who don't feel satisfied with the parents in terms of the relationship, they are actually ha- having a high chance of having problems. So the more likely a child is to have issues going on at school or at home, that makes them more likely to develop problems with their internet use. Especially with things like internet gaming disorder. Kids who don't like the real world sink into the digital one. But how many children is this actually affecting? Well, considering that internet addiction isn't fully an accepted diagnosis, it's pretty hard to get a solid figure. But there are estimates. Probably among the whole spectrum of young people having problems, very likely there will be around about 2 to 5% of young people really having a severe problem that they really required systematic treatment. And what about adults? Again, it's just so hard to tell, especially because, as Lawrence mentioned, internet problems can be a symptom of bigger issues. In fact, Katina Michael thinks the internet exacerbates these behaviours because it's especially wired to play into people's pre-existing addictions. Are we prying on impulsivity? My sister used to work at TVSN a good 20 years ago and she remembers people calling in the middle of the night over the infomercials they'd see on television and buying things that they didn't need but being compulsive buyers. And so we're tapping into a market now where it's much worse and it's almost happening without the subscriber 
calling in. It's happening by push selling rather than pull. But how can you escape this? We can't exactly go cold turkey. It's just not possible. You rely on the internet for work, to unwind at the end of the day with a TV show. Hell, it's how every social event is organised. You'd never go out with your friends if you weren't on Facebook. Exactly. Some countries have opened internet rehabs where people learn to live without the internet. But the problem is that as soon as they leave, they're bombarded with it. Lauren says the most effective approach is all about coaching people to learn to live with it. At the moment, in terms of handling this problem, one of the approach is what we call the cognitive emotive therapy or cognitive behavioural therapy. And that's been actually adopted and modified for internet problems. The result actually indicates a very positive result. The internet isn't just impacting us as individuals. After the break, we'll look at how interconnectivity is transforming how we relate to each other and shifting the goalposts on what we think is normal. Would you take medical advice from a celebrity chef? What is multi-drug resistance? What does your gut say about your mental health? Where did the anti-vaccination movement come from? Think Health, the show on 2SER where we look at the biggest health concerns of today, decrypt all that medical jargon and talk to the people who are trying to solve these problems. Think Health is available on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health and subscribe. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. We're taking a closer look at the experience of being online. Remember Vivian from the start of the show? She's only three and can already make calls and play games on her mum's phone. Children are more interconnected than ever before. By the time Vivian gets to school, her class will be learning on a tablet rather than a workbook. And she and her friends will talk on Facebook or Instagram rather than over the phone. How is all this influencing our culture? We got a taste of that this week. Good evening, and we begin here tonight with a bloody ending to a mystifying and horrifying story involving a murder that played out on a video posted on Facebook. The suspect recording on his phone as he shot and killed an elderly man right the on the street. The murderer used Facebook to share the video of a random shooting and used Facebook's live stream service to talk about it just moments after the murder took place. Facebook has an option for you to report inappropriate content, but no one reported it. In fact, it was watched a few hundred thousand times before it was taken down. This murder reveals the dark side of the internet, and the fact nobody reported it does make you wonder if we're looking for more and more extreme content for kicks. Think about drugs. The more you use, the more you need to get a rush. But is the internet really tearing society apart, or is this just the dark side of us, and now it's easier for us to share it? David Glantz is director of the University of Western Australia's Centre for Software Practice. He says things like the Facebook murder are a consequence of the connectedness of the internet. Social media has encouraged us to share pretty much all aspects of our lives online with not only our close friends, but random strangers. It's been known from research for a long time that there's this disinhibition effect that the more separated you are from the people that you're communicating with or the consequences of actions that you take, the less inhibited you are to do things. 
But that's not to say social media encourages you to murder. No, not at all. But the disinhibition effect does explain things like trolls, which are people who write inflammatory comments online. Trolls write the types of things you would never say to someone's face. They're effectively hiding behind that online barrier, and behind it people feel more free to write things that shock people. David says this shows how quickly society can adapt. People start behaving in ways that they probably wouldn't have behaved 20 or even 10 years ago because they've adapted to this type of behaviour and it's become commonplace online. And a couple of decades ago, your online world and reality were separate. Now, reality is the online world and our identity is tied to what's going on online. And that's how we end up with filter bubbles, which exist online but then bleed into how you perceive your offline life. Basically, the filter bubble is an algorithm used by companies like Google and Facebook to tailor everything you see online to you and your interests. Katina Michael explains. Some people have said, look, I love receiving more of what I like. Perhaps I'm looking for a course and all of a sudden I get a bunch of university degree ads on the right-hand panel of my Gmail account. And you're thinking, it knows what I'm typing. It knows what messages I sent. In fact, it even knows, depending on your sharing options, who you've been communicating with and your social network. So say I want to look up an Italian restaurant in Sydney and I type that into Google. It will show me Italian restaurants in Sydney, Australia and not Sydney, Nova Scotia. And it would know this because every other time I use Google to search for something, that something is in Australia and not Canada. What's the problem with that? Well, it's fine when it comes to finding food. But when it comes to your political preferences, it's a different story altogether. Events like Brexit and the US election have been blamed on the filter bubble because people are more likely to see and share things that interest them, regardless of whether it's accurate and balanced. But Brexit and the US election were votes, and that's just what people decided. How do we know the filter bubble influenced it? It's really hard to measure the impact of something we can't actually see, but we know these mechanisms are in place. David says the filter bubble is a reminder that the internet isn't a free space, but rather the most popular websites we use, Google, Facebook, Twitter, are governed by corporate interest. The motivation that the platform providers have means that they really aren't that concerned about what happens on their platforms as long as it happens and that we share with promiscuity. I think all of those elements come together to leave us in a situation where there is a disincentive for these companies to police their own platform. None of this is new though. Murder, fears, lies, distrust, even filter bubbles to an extent because we've always hung out with people like us. The internet didn't invent any of this. You're right. But if this is the stuff that sells, this is what we see more of online. David likens it to a junk food diet. We are getting fatter and fatter because we just were not, in evolutionary terms, suited to eating the quantity of fat and sugar and carbohydrate that we now have access to. So our obesity is really as a result of the abundant supply of these products, plus the fact that companies realize very quickly that they could make a lot of money by packaging this up in a particularly attractive way. And essentially, the internet has done exactly the same thing. We're talking about social media here, though. You choose what you do online. You do, but you're doing it inside a bigger context. And when we think about the cultural impact of social media specifically, probably the biggest change these platforms have introduced is the selfie. Here's Katina again. 
Google had pronounced last year that 24 billion selfies were uploaded to their servers alone. That's 13.7 petabytes of storage space. And I, I had to stop and think, well, that's not even the data that goes to Facebook, iCloud, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. So if we're putting up about 24 billion selfies, that's about 16 selfies on average per day per person. How many selfies have you put up today, Shane? I'm a little bit behind on my quota. Is it really that bad if people are putting up self-portraits online? It's not really a question of whether it's good or bad, but this is changing the way we see ourselves and how we connect to other people, especially since social media is set up like a reward system. If you put up a photo that people are interested in, you get lots of likes. And when you get those likes, you get the dopamine hit, it all feeds back into that idea of addiction. Yeah, and when kids as young as eight have their own Instagram accounts, for some, but not all kids, this can trigger self-esteem issues as they grow up online. At what age should we allow kids to be on the internet then? There are some guidelines. Katina explains. Below the ages of three should be zero time on any screen. Below the ages of six, maybe an hour. And then it escalates greater to the point where the teenager at 12 to 16 years of age takes responsibility on their own accord for the time that they spend. No screen time for three years and under? That's impossible. Like Lawrence pointed out, kids are just doing what their parents are doing. And if a child's parent is on the screen, then the child's going to be on the screen as well. Well, this is just one suggestion. Another option is media literacy classes. Here's David Glantz again. Governments are starting to look at legislation and other programs that they may have to bring in. So we have, you know, financial literacy, we have health literacy, all of these aspects, they certainly do help. You've heard us talk about this on the show before, the need for digital literacy classes for kids. And so media literacy would be teaching them not just how to use the internet, but to understand a little bit more about how it works and what the consequences can be if you're not careful. It is important to note as well that it's not all doom and gloom on the internet. And actually, great grassroots movements and online campaigns have done unquestionably good things online. Here's Lawrence Lamb again. The internet has been providing us with tremendous advantage in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of promoting um, no health, in terms of even um, no managing an environment. We cannot turn back time, really. We cannot go back and say, oh, no, we, we are not going to you know, use less internet because it is really embedded in daily life. a graph the other day that had all the new technology from the 1900s compared to today. The comparison they were looking at is how long it took for a product to be in 90% of American homes. So imagine time at the bottom of the graph and percentage adoption on the vertical. For things like the stove, the car, the washing machine, the graph took a little while to hit that 90%. There is a line that has a bit of a sideways bent. For HDTV, the smartphone and the tablet, the line is vertical meaning that as soon as these products were released, we all bought them. We were early adopters. Yep. And so with these older technologies, we had time to work out how to use it and work out the most socially acceptable way of using the product. Whereas now we're playing catch up. We're still figuring out the social norms and the effects these devices have on our health and our relationships and our society. And it's probably going to take a while to get those answers. So for the time being, we have to be a bit more conscious of using these devices for our benefit and not letting them use us. 
in a sense, what we should actually think about in terms of our in relationship with the internet is that we need to think about from a more positive way. How could we use the technology in a very positive way of helping us, but not allowing ourselves to fall into the trap of being enslaved by by the technology? Now, this is the the balance we have to draw. This is in fact, this is an art actually rather than science. Thanks for listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology in Sydney. For more info, head to 2ser.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. I'm Ellen Leibader. Bye for now.